Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Mark Faulkner, Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor. I'm joined, as always, by Ted Colfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. Coming up, we'll hear from Red Berenson, a former Red Wing, a former Michigan coach, of course. He was on the 1972 Canadian team, which beat the Soviet Union 50 years ago. The anniversary of Paul Henderson's game-winning goal is this Wednesday, September 28th. But first, Ted, you're in Traverse City for Red Wings training camp day two today. What's it been like? Small sample size, a new coach, new players. The red-white game is this weekend. There's exhibition games coming up, eight of them. And then the season opener, Friday, October the 14th, against Montreal. What do you make so far, Ted, of the first few days of camp? Well, it is early, Mark. Like you said, it's a very, very small sample size. But you, you can't you, – you definitely sense the enthusiasm, the mm-hmm. energy. Uh, it's it, You know, people are trying to impress the new boss. I mean, that's what it is, basically. I mean, you got a new voice in there, a new – a new coach, obviously, in Derek Lalonde, a new staff. And it's, you know, you have to re- reestablish yourself, uh, kind of prove yourself to the new staff. And you definitely sense that on the ice. And, yeah, mm-hmm. there's a great energy. I think, you know, let's face it, we've talked about it a lot over the last year. I think maybe probably a new voice was needed. Maybe the old voice just got tired. Uh, many the guys maybe just were beginning to tune it out. So now you have a new voice, a new uh, way of doing things, a new message, and, you know, it's playing well so far. Ted, you mentioned uh, new coach Derek Lalonde. He met the media the other day, and here's what he had to say when you asked him about his first day as an NHL head coach. Hey, Derek, I'm just curious, going back to an earlier question. Did you let, I mean, did you let, allow yourself to soak it, soak it in a little bit this morning when you stepped on the ice? It's like, all right, I'm finally head coach in the NHL? I mean, for a split second, did you kind of like soak it in a little bit? Not really. You're so busy on trying to get everything, the check, the boxes checked off of being prepped. Um, not really. Um, more nervous about today just going smoothly. You want to make a first impression uh, with everyone. Um, you know, we want to be sharp with what we're doing as a staff, which will reflect in our practice and our play. So, Nope, did not have that moment. Uh, maybe early in the season, maybe through the first game, maybe through the first W, but um, good question, fair question, but maybe I'm getting really cold in my old age, but no, nope, didn't really have any of those feelings. Ted Lalonde there talked about being more nervous, about making sure everything went smoothly, and by all accounts, the wings are often running in good shape. They'll miss Andrew Kopp for the exhibition games. Otherwise, what can fans expect to see in the next couple of weeks with Lalonde in charge and trying to improve that team defense? Well, one little hiccup this morning, Mark. Tyler Bertuzzi didn't skate. Mm-hmm. Uh, all Lalonde said was 
there was something that flared up and he considers Bertuzzi day to day. So we'll see about that. And like you mentioned, cop isn't going to, doesn't sound like cop is going to be playing any exhibition games, Okay, but they do expect him. If not the regular season opener, probably within days or a few games of that. So they're optimistic. He will return. It's just, he probably won't, you will have missed training camp, which is never a good thing, or the preseason. Uh, and also Oscar Sundquist has, has yet to practice here these first few practices. He's out day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So there's a few, uh, like you would expect, there's a few bumps and bruises here. Um, I think you're going to see, the big thing that we're going to see, I think, in these data exhibition games, he's going to play everybody. He's going to play everybody with different people. Mm-hmm. You know, take a look at different combinations, different combos. Uh, it's a great, it's a great chance to see what you have here, and you know he's going to take advantage of it. Eight games is a lot, and I think he's kind of relishing it because he's got a lot of ideas in his head. He wants to see quite a few different forward combinations. It looks like so. Whatever you see online about lines or whatnot in practice please don't take any it's just use it just put uh, it's a put a lot of grain of salt on it okay uh, it's not it's not bedrock at all it's nothing in stone nothing gospel i think you're going to see a lot of different combinations before opening night and Actually, with the depth they have, there's a lot of different people he can play with each other. Ted, also this week, Steve Eiserman met the media on Wednesday. And here's what he had to say when you asked him about building team chemistry with all these new coaches and new players. Steve, I mean, like you touched on it, a lot of new faces, new coaching staff, for goodness sake. As far as chemistry, is that just coming into the uh, the ice every day, coming into practice every day and just working through it and getting more comfortable with each other, basically? Um, well, I think it, it starts with character, um, you know, in building a team guys buying into the program, uh, and, 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 you know, wanting to be a part of it and willing to put the team first. And then, you know, it moves into the work ethic, uh, on and off the ice and the commitment to the team, both on and off the ice. So, uh, it just takes time for things to settle in where players play, who they play with, get to know the coaching staff, the way things are done. Of players coming in from other organizations, uh, just getting to know one another. And I think it's a good start of being here. And in Traverse City, you get the players all here together. Um, you know, they they uh, spend their three hours each day in the morning, and then they get the opportunity, whether it's to go play golf or to socialize in many ways, go out for dinner and, and start to build the relationships and get to know one another. Ted, the first thing he mentioned there was character guys, team first players like David Perron, Ben Sherratt, Andrew Kopp, certainly bigger players too. And later on, he didn't really want to get into the playoffs, did he? He said, just improve the power play, the penalty killing. He said, let's aim for more than 32 wins. That's what they had last year. And that would put them around the 500 mark. One thing, though, Teddy didn't mention the Boston Bruins. He said the top three teams in their division are Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Florida. So can the Wings catch the Bruins, who also have a new coach? They'll be without Charlie McAvoy and Brad Marchand to start the season. And how long do you think it'll take for Lalonde to get a handle on the chemistry as players? You were talking about the amount of ice time he hands out, who plays with whom. 
What are your thoughts about the Bruins and how long it's going to take for this chemistry to take hold? Well, I think it was simply an oversight on Eiserman's part. I mean, he's not one to, you know, poke poke at an organization like the Bruins. That was simply an oversight. Mm-hmm. But they do have a heck of a team, let's face it. I think people might be sleeping on the Boston Bruins a little bit. I mean, those McLevoy and Marchand are expected to be back, what, late November, I think. I think there's plenty of time there to have a very good season, and that's still a great core. And they were 33 points ahead of the yeah, Wings exactly. last year. Exactly. That's a lot to make. That's a lot of, year, yeah, absolutely. I will say one thing. As far as leadership, it was interesting today. Lalone made special mention of David Perron and Ben Sherratt and just the mm. leadership they've they've shown here these first couple of days. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're established veterans. They've Evidently, they've really done a good job with some of the younger players leading the way here these first couple of days. So it was interesting that he did point out those two and Perron specifically. I mean, I think that was one of the reasons, let's face it, that Iserman went out and got him. I mean, he was an established winner in St. Louis, uh, always been valued around the league for his the way he goes about doing business and Evidently, it's been pretty impressive for these first couple of days behind the scenes and on the ice. Time now, Ted, for our interview guest. Here's Red Berenson, the legendary coach at Michigan, a former Red Wing, and a member of that historic 1972 Summit Series. Joining us now is Red Berenson, the former Michigan hockey coach for 33 years, 22 straight years in the NCAA tournament, two national titles, He's also a former Red Wing, 17 years in the NHL, five years here in Detroit, a Stanley Cup champion in Montreal, six-time NHL All-Star. Today, though, we're talking about the 1972 Summit Series between Canada and the Soviet Union. Red, welcome to the podcast. 50 years ago, on September 28, 1972, you were on that Canadian team, which won the eighth and deciding game on a goal by former Red Wing Paul Henderson with just 34 seconds left. Where do you rank that hockey experience compared with the Stanley Cup and NCAA championships? And did you realize at the time what you guys had accomplished against the Russians? Well, no, it's a long story, Mark. Uh, You know, when this series was set up, the Russians had never played uh, against NHL players. Mm -hmm. And they'd never come over here really as a team either. And there were no Russians in the NHL at that time. So they were an unknown, kind of a, uh, a mystique or mystery type, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, skill level. But every year they won the, either the World Championship or the Olympics. So people knew they were, they were good. They just didn't know how good. So when that series was started, I mean, it was if you, if you were a betting man, you'd be crazy <laughs> to bet against Canada. And, and I think that's how the players felt, too, the Canadian players for sure, we're probably overconfident. And we had a group of about 30-some players uh, for training camp, and everyone made the team. It was just a matter of who was going to be playing mm-hmm. and how many games. And so, uh, you know, we, we didn't expect – we didn't know what to expect from the Russians, but we found out real quick. If, if you remember the game, the first game was in Montreal. And, and the, the environment was electric. The prime minister was there. It was a big, big event, and we couldn't wait. And, uh, in fact, I think Esposito scored the first goal, the first shift, and it was just a matter of how bad we were going to beat them. Well, 
we found out by the end of the second period, we were whipped physically and they were rolling and they were in mid-season condition and we were in pre-season condition and it really showed. So they won that game and all of Canada and anyone that followed NHL hockey realized what happened? How could that happen? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were saying the same thing. We're sitting in the locker room. We couldn't believe it. And they beat us good. And they were good players, good goals, good plays. And, uh, and it wasn't that we were bad. We just weren't as fit or ready to play as hard for 60 minutes as they did and so on. So we learned a lot that game. And, of course, two nights later was another game in Toronto and then Winnipeg and then Vancouver. Well, when the smoke cleared after four games in Canada, we'd only won one game. And that was a game in Toronto. Peter Mahavlet scored a great individual shorthanded goal to win the game. But uh, then it was a tie game in Winnipeg, and we lost badly again in Vancouver. So the team really left Canada with their tail between their legs and everyone <laughs> in Canada second-guessing our system and our training and our personnel and everything else you could second-guess about a hockey team. And But we had a a week in Sweden between the four games in Canada and four games in, in, the, in Moscow. And so we played two exhibition games in Sweden. And I think in Sweden with the humility that we gained and, uh, and obviously some second guessing, uh, we had to really come together as a team. I think in Canada, we were a bunch of all-stars playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time we got to Moscow again, we were more like a team and the story goes on. But to answer your question, we didn't think it was that big a deal at the time. Okay. So when we won, we weren't surprised we won. We didn't like the way it all happened, but you know, we should have won, we thought, and, and we did win. But looking back 50 years later and you say, gee, this, this thing is still a big deal because look what happened in the NHL. Look what happened in hockey around the world with Europeans flooding over here and, and more and more Russians and and so on. It's changed the face of the game, probably changed the style of the game a little bit on the, on the ice sure. as well and the skill level. And certainly it's uh, opened up respect for the foreign players that, that really never existed before. Red, you were one of four Red Wings on that team. Marcel Dion was just 21. He didn't play in the series, but he did play in the exhibition games in Stockholm and Prague. Mickey Redmond was 24. He played on a line with you in that first game, the one that you mentioned. You were 33, and you also played in game six in Russia with one assist. But how about Gary Bergman, Red? He played in all eight games. He was a defensive defenseman. He had three assists. He was paired with Brad Park of the Rangers. The other pairings with the Canadians, they had Serge Savard and Guy Lapointe. And the Blackhawks had a pairing there, too, with Pat Stapleton and Bill White. But Bergman, he was 33 like you at the time, one of the older players on the team, Red. He played 11 years here in Detroit. So what was he like as a teammate? And why do you think his style of play works so well against this puck possession Russian team? Well, I think for Bergie, it was a a breakout series. You know, I played with him and against him uh, in Detroit. And, And as you said, he was a good now, he wouldn't, he, I don't know if he would agree that he was a defensive defenseman. He <laughs> he played like an offensive defenseman, 
I know the forwards a lot of times would kid each other and say, hey, come on, you forwards, get the puck up to Bergie. Because <laughs> he was always ready to go. But in that series, I thought everything fell into place uh, for Bergie. He got a chance to play with an, an, another all-star defenseman, Brad Park. They seemed to really complement each other well. And Bergie added all the Bergie traits that uh, seemed to fit into the series. He could skate. He could move the puck. He could jump into the rush. He, he was a good competitor. He played hard. He played physical. And uh, he really, uh, I thought, embraced the series as much as anybody. And it was like his chance to show uh, what kind of a player he was. And I thought he had he had the best series, that uh, maybe the best hockey he ever played in his career. Good for him. Red, what happened after game six when you talked to Coach Harry Sinden about the lineup for the next two games? In Scott Morrison's book, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever, he said you volunteered to sit out the last two games if other players were playing better. Now, some people may be surprised to hear of a player volunteering to come out of the lineup. But all through your career, you really have taken the path less traveled you were the first collegiate player to go directly to the NHL in 1962 from Regina to Michigan to Montreal. You were one of the first players to wear a helmet, just like you did during your three years with the Wolverines. And that final year, you had 43 goals and nine hat tricks. In fact, two days after winning the cup, you were back on campus here in Ann Arbor, back to business school. And then during your 33-year tenure as coach at Michigan, you taught others about the importance of life after hockey. So with that in mind, doing things your way, Red, how do you see the volunteer offer 50 years later? Would you do the same thing all over again? Well, I would. And it, I guess it was a little bit the coach in me. I didn't know I was ever going to be a coach. I was a player and obviously mm -hmm. uh, uh, well-traveled, I guess, to a certain extent. I played for Montreal and then a little bit with the Rangers and then St. Louis, Detroit, and back to St. Louis. But uh, I hadn't got back to St. Louis yet at this juncture, but Harry and I were just talking while we were skating around the ice before practice. And, um, and I had just played in that, as you said, the sixth game over there and, and I couldn't keep up. Like I was, oh, I was okay. arguably one of our best players, I thought as a skater and, uh, and, but I was falling behind because I wasn't playing in the games. And so, and I wasn't the only one. I mean, we had a lot of players that were, we played hard in practice, but it's not the same as a game. So I told Harry, I said, Harry, you know, you can't make everybody happy. you got to play the guys that are playing the best. And, <laughs> and, if they can, and if they're the ones to go with, go with them. Whether I'm in the lineup or not isn't important. What's, what is important is you pick the best players right now, the guys that are playing the best. And so I didn't tell him I didn't want to play. I just told him, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to push myself in or out of the lineup, but you're the coach and you've got 35 players you're trying to make happy and you just can't do it. And uh, so that was my uh, subtle advice to Harry sure. Sinden, who he and John Ferguson did a great job in keeping that team together. You know, we did have players leave uh, just being unhappy of their roles on the team or they weren't playing or weren't playing enough and so on. And so it was a constant challenge to keep all these so-called all-star players uh, happy with their situations. But Fergie, and like I say, Fergie and Harry did a great job. But at, at that point, 
the whole series was coming down to these last two games. And um, I just gave Harry just a kind of a, some support from the player level that, hey, it's okay. We don't, we're all not going to be happy. You play the players you think you can win with. They're playing the best. Red, thanks for your time so far. Just two more questions. There was another former Red Wing on the team, a player we mentioned off the top, Paul Henderson, the Canadian legend. He played five years here in Detroit. Then against the Russians playing on that line with Bobby Clark and Ron Ellis, he scored the game-winning goals in game six, the game you played in, as well as game seven in game eight. Should he be in the Hockey Hall of Fame? I asked Phil Esposito that question last year, and Esposito said it doesn't matter because in his mind, Paul Henderson is a Hall of Famer, 100% the hero of an entire nation. You're a member of at least five Hall of Fames, Red, the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, the Michigan, Saskatchewan, and St. Louis Sports Hall of Fames, and the University of Michigan Athletic Hall of Honor. Do you think it matters if Paul Henderson is in the Hockey Hall of Fame? And then does it matter to you, uh, Red, if you are elected probably in the builders category for your contributions to the game? No, no, it really, it doesn't matter to me because I've been a lifetime player, coach, and fan, and so on of of hockey at all levels. And Mm -hmm. I'm still a big supporter of college hockey as well as the NHL. But uh, I think for Paul, uh, Paul definitely should should be in the Hall of Fame because if here we are talking about a series 50 years later, how many other series, whether it's a mm-hmm. Stanley Cup final or a Memorial Cup or an Allen Cup, how many series are even remembered, you know, 10 or 20 years later, except by the few players that are still around that played in them. But this one is remembered by everyone that was alive at that time in Canada. And when you look at the numbers, I think, and Ken Dryden just came out with a book called The Series, and it's all about the Summit Series, and it's a great read. But he starts off by saying there are 22 million people in Canada at that time. 16 million of them watched that last game. And of those that are still alive, they will all remember where they were. And Paul Henderson was the hero, undoubtedly. I can tell you he was our best player in that game. But it was magical the way he was able to it just work out that way, that he got to the puck at the right time in those scenarios. And um, and it was magical the way the puck was going in against uh, Trechiak, who was undoubtedly one of the best goalies in the world, even though he wasn't in the NHL. So I, I would vote for Paul. Absolutely. Finally, Red, what will you remember most about the 1972 Summit Series? The team came home to a hero's welcome. The Wings started 6-0 and that year, but it was year two of seven straight years out of the playoffs, the longest drought in franchise history. The Wings can tie that record this year. They've missed the playoffs for six straight years. Are we making too much of this exhibition series played during the Cold War, Red? Or are there memories which remind you of why this was called the sporting event of the century in Canada? Well, I think there are reminders. Uh, definitely when, mm-hmm. when the, the games took place, I mean, you get down on that, on that ice against an opponent that you now, at first maybe you didn't respect much. And, but when you, when you finally do, you realize that this is important. This isn't just an exhibition series. Mm-hmm. This this became uh, our lifestyle against the, their lifestyle, especially when we got to Russia, and uh, and it's our way of life, 
and our government and it's communism against freedom and and on and on like we, we this was an education in uh, two different worlds when we got to russia so i think all the players will remember how happy they were to leave russia at the time and how happy they were to get back to a free country i mean the people on the plane were cheering and singing and and crying it was amazing and this is and this was a combination of not just players and wives but but coaches fans i mean there were 3000 canadian fans over there and and when they they, they couldn't wait to get there and then they, they couldn't wait to leave like it was a, it was a magical series and it was great the way it turned out but uh ironically we're talking here in uh in the 50th anniversary but on the 45th anniversary Russia invited the Canadian players to visit Russia and uh to revisit Russia and I had just retired that year from Michigan and I thought geez I never thought I'd want to go back to Russia <laughs> but I'm I'm retired I can do it and and why not and go back and see what it's like and revisit the rink and there they had a hockey hall of fame over there and they wanted to show us and they wanted to show us uh Sochi for example they just had the winter olympics over there and all the facilities they had there so i was one of six players that were able to make it there and uh and they actually picked us up in hamburg germany or frankfurt germany mm-hmm. and uh, in putin's plane so this is like our first one of the russian version they picked us up in frankfurt and flew us to sochi which is a thousand miles south on the black sea and they entertained us there that night we had dinner with putin we went to a hockey game and it was a, a memorable night and the whole idea and, and the guys like trechiak were there and yakashev and actually larionov was there and fatisov and a lot of familiar names around detroit uh, as well as the six of us that went over dennis hall was there stapleton peter and frank mahovlich and so on and myself but we had a uh, a great experience there and and Russia had changed a lot and uh, i felt a lot i felt i was glad i went back and saw everything was better the stores the cars the people were dressed better the roads were better everything seemed to be better and of course i don't you know none of us like what's going on now mm-hmm. but that was just 5 year 5 short years ago and it was kind of a 45th celebration for them and putin was um toasting all all night long about <laughs> how great it was to he was 17 at the time of the tournament and how he was blown away by it as a youngster and uh and to this day he plays old timer hockey but he said that it's ironic how sports can bring two countries together and that was a feeling 5 years ago Red, thanks again for joining us on our podcast and sharing some of your memories talking about the 1972 Summit Series, the role of the Red Wings on that team, especially Gary Bergman, and also where the series ranked in your groundbreaking career in hockey. All the best in your role now as an advisor with Big 10 Hockey. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I've enjoyed uh, reliving the memories. Our thanks again to Red Berenson. Now let's hear from Red Wings captain Dylan Larkin. Here's what he had to say when our Detroit News columnist John Neo asked him about what kind of team the Wings might be this year. Hey Dylan, you referenced it earlier. I guess what do you think the identity of this team can be? Well, I think it's something that it, it, we have so many new guys, uh, John, you know, I think 
with uh, a new coaching staff, I really believe it's got to it's got to develop naturally. And you know, we're we're day one of camp. You you look at the roster on paper. Um, that's about all we've been able to do for the last three or four months. We we just had one practice. So I think it's got to evolve. I think we have to be a team that's hungry. We can't look at our roster and the the acquisitions we had this this summer and, and think that we're going to make the playoffs or think that we're we're a great team because we haven't proved anything. We're going to go out and prove it. We're going to have to be ready every night. We're we're in one of the we're I think we're in the toughest division in the NHL. So um, we're going to have to prove it. We're going to have to be on our toes, play fast, be uh, very hard to play against. Those are very cliche, but they're real things. And and, uh, you know, there's there's going to be other, um, you know, qualities and, and things that we have to bring. Um, that will that will form into our identity as we go along here. Ted, uh, John also asked about Larkin's contract status. Larkin is making six point one million this year, and he said he doesn't see himself playing anywhere else. What kind of contract do you see him getting? Eight years, the max, uh, as much as nine million or more a season, or maybe a shorter term deal, three or four years, when the salary cap rises. That might be to his benefit. And he said the wings are better on paper, but he also said they haven't proven anything. If the wings do play faster and are harder to play against, as Dylan Larkin just mentioned, do you see him scoring 30 goals again, a point per game with a bigger contract, maybe before the season starts? It's a lot of questions there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll just say that there will be, uh, I mean, uh, there'll be a contract done. I'm not sure if it'll get done before the regular season. They'll get something done. It will be interesting to see how many years. I would suspect it's going to be a longer-term one. But let's face it, my friend, you look at some of these contracts being thrown around the league, it seems like the price might be going up daily. Jeez, oh, Pete. Uh, but we'll see. Well, something that will, will be worked out. I'm more interested in Tyler Bertuzzi. I'll be interested to see how that works out. He's also obviously potentially unrestricted and – I don't know. I mean, you it'll be interesting to see if, how that progresses and can they reach a deal? Uh, I mean, there is a train of thought that maybe Tyler Bertuzzi's played some of his best hockey already and with the way he plays and whatnot, and he's had the injuries. It's something to watch. It'll be interesting to see. And finally, Ted, you mentioned Dave Perron earlier. He's 34 years old. He signed a two-year contract for $4.75 million per season. Here's what he had to say the other day when you asked him about putting on the Red Wings jersey for the first time. Last one. I mean, it is. I mean, let's face it. You've played a lot of games against the Wings. I mean, still a little strange putting on a Red Wings jersey today or, yeah. the other day or whatnot or what? Yeah, it is. It is quite honestly. And I didn't get uh, some of my equipment un until like last week, really. So I still had the Blues gloves on. It was kind of weird to skate with that still. Finally got them. Uh, interesting story. When I was like 13, 14, I got some some red like Sergei Fedorov gloves or something. So it, it kind of reminded me of that when I put the, the gloves on. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool though. Like uh, original six team for me, I never had the chance throughout all the teams, the opportunities that I had in my career so far. Some really exciting times, uh, but I think that's exciting for me too. Uh, just uh, getting to know Detroit outside all the, the area, getting my, my kids in school, uh, started with, uh, my son seven playing minor hockey. Like for me, I, I enjoy so much going to the 
minor hockey rinks, summer rinks are pretty cold, all that stuff. But this is how you really get to know a community and the, and the people. So it's, it's been fun so far. Ted, you also featured David Perron in today's paper and online at DetroitNews.com. You mentioned the leadership capabilities. He's also a power play specialist. He'll be one of the oldest players on the team. What else do you think he can provide in Derek Lalonde's first season here in Detroit? I'll tell you one thing, everything I've heard from St. Louis, they miss him. They they really, you know, a lot of the media, a lot of the fans and whatnot, that, that was the guy that they expected to return. He's had several really good years with the Blues here recently. Um, he helps out in a lot of ways, and I think he plays the type of game that the Wings want to establish. And uh, I'll be interested to see if he can supply maybe 25 goals. I think, mm-hmm. I think he had a similar type of year in St. Louis last year. If he could do that here, that would be that'd be a big addition. I think he's going to be, you know, on paper, he could be a really good addition. And if he produces those types of numbers, I don't know. That's That'll be a big help for this roster. Ted, thanks again for your time today. And that'll do it for episode 76 of our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. You can find all of Ted's stories online at DetroitNews.com, as well as on our Octopulse Facebook page on Twitter, Instagram, Instagram stories, and Snapchat. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, rating, and reviewing these podcasts. Ted and I will be back in a couple of weeks, and our special guest will be former Red Wings defenseman Rick Zombo. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.